Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. Tonight's book is one that I've seen show up on my uh, my Google searches, uh, on the advertised section of my Google searches, on, on the advertised section of my Amazon, and probably somewhere between five and ten people have told me about this book, recommended it to me, or at least asked me if I had any thoughts about it. So I thought I'd, I'd put this on. The name of the book, um, first of all, before I get into it, I want to warn you those of you that are listening, that there's explicit language in this book and some of the quotes, some of the concepts that I'll be discussing contain explicit language. If that makes you uncomfortable, you're not going to like this book. Um, and, and I'm not even going to be as prolific in my explicitness as he is. And he can, get, he can actually be fairly, fairly shocking with some of his examples. So the name of the book is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Monson. So I think it's a clever way to begin to think about Buddhist principles, to begin to think about the way that we engage ourselves and each other with, with belief systems that would, we would be wise to start asking ourselves questions about. I'll make comments about the book, and then I have kind of a list of commentaries toward the end of this, but I'll teach some of the main points that, that Monson teaches throughout the book. Um. First of all, he talk, tells the story of this, this, this author, this writer, um, Bukowski. And he describes how he was trying to find a niche, trying to find success, uh, constantly being rejected, um, and how he sunk into a deep depression and an alcohol-filled depression until somebody stumbled upon some of his work and reached out to him and gave him a shot, gave him a chance. And, and in his work, he would share that depression, share that darkness, share the, the, the battles with demons that he was having. And a lot of people, upon looking upon this story, would say, you know, he never gave up on his dreams. He continued to persevere. When in reality, in a lot of ways, he had given up. He, he had almost completely withdrawn himself and continued to struggle with the darkness and depression. Um, but one thing that he did that really resonated with people is he had a certain kind of comfort with himself, with himself as a failure. He could embrace that. And because he embraced that and, and wrote about it authentically, it was compelling. And what I've learned as a therapist is there's nothing more compelling than authenticity. Right? When, when, when you show up authentically, deeply honest, it's easy for me to be there with you. And when you show up with a lot of BS, right, or, or a lot of trying to get someone to believe something about you, see something about you, it can be at times at least disinteresting, right? So th- it starts off with the idea of, of being authentic and embracing the, the dark side of yourself, right? The, the, the side of yourself that, that you want to hide from the world. He talks about this feedback loop from hell, He says something like this, exactly like this. He says, you get anxious about confronting somebody in your life. That anxiety cripples you and you start wondering why you're so anxious. Now you're becoming anxious about being anxious. Oh no, doubly anxious. Now you're anxious about your anxiety, which is causing more anxiety. Quick, where's the whiskey? 
It's this lack of compassion that we have towards ourselves, And this is the real first Buddhist idea that he introduced into this. We can learn to observe ourselves and our feelings. He doesn't say it this way, but essentially without judgment, with acceptance. And that suffering, that, that pain, that anxiety is exacerbated when we try to avoid it. Another quote from the book, God, I do the feedback loop all the time. I'm such a loser for doing it. I should stop. Oh, my God, I feel like such a loser for calling myself a loser. I should stop calling myself a loser. Ah, fuck, I'm doing it again. See, I'm a loser. Right? It's this judgment that we have about ourselves. So much of my work as a therapist is helping people when they come in by by giving them a different response, by being curious about their symptoms, by being curious about their struggle, struggles, their, their failures, their difficulties, instead of being judgmental about them, we, we begin to have the possibility that they can do that for themselves. But because our, our struggles, our challenges, our, our anxieties, we're uncomfortable to somebody, we're uncomfortable at some point in time, we have this internal voice, right? From parents, from, from our, our peers in school, from teachers, from the culture, Right? He talks a lot about uh, social media and how the messages about everybody being happy and living this wonderful kind of travelogued life is a hard thing to to measure up to it and exacerbates or or, or echoes this feedback loop from hell. The feedback loop from hell, he says, has become a borderline epidemic, making many of us overly stressed, overly neurotic, and overly self-loathing. He says in the book, the desire for more positive experience is itself a negative experience. And paradoxically, the acceptance of one negative, one's negative experience is itself a positive experience. Right? This is kind of a radical acceptance and a mindfulness. You know, when we, when we lead meditations, sometimes the first thing that we tell people, teach people is, it's okay if, if your monkey brain is jumping all over the place. It's okay if you lose track of the sound of my voice. You can just observe that. You can just look at that. And the amazing thing that, that happens when we allow ourselves to observe without judgment is we start to unravel things. We, we start to heal. So this is what Buddhists would call um, attachment that we must let go of attachments or judgments about things. And that if we're attached to having a positive experience, we're going we're gonna to suffer more. Some of you may have heard of that, that, that famous now story that I've seen all over social media and in the news about somebody wrote called Welcome to Holland, about a group of travelers on a plane who are, are destined to, they're going to one place in Europe. I can't remember where it was. But when they land, somebody says, Welcome to Holland. And everybody's disappointed and upset. And the author points out Holland is a lovely place, but everybody's attachment to where they were going makes it a, a miserable experience. Ever notice, he says, that sometimes when you care less about something, you do better at it? Notice how it's often the person who is the least invested in the success of something that actually depends up, actually ends up achieving it? Notice how sometimes when you stop giving a fuck, everything seems to fall into place? So... The idea is that our anxiety, our attempts to try to control 
our feelings, what we're going through, things that we really can't control, leads to this kind of misery. And we know this from art and, and sports and so many things that it's the, it's the fear or the anxiety or the attachment of the thing that leads to the most suffering. It's, it's part of what happens when your children, through their difficulties and struggles, kind of shift you out of where you thought you were going in life. And that causes a great deal of grief and pain and loss. And then so many, so many of you can tell the story that when you learn to, to accept what is happening and the challenges it, it brings and to lean into them, that you also then have access to all the joy, all the wisdom that that new path, that, that new story has to offer you. Pain is extricable, he says. It's an extricable thread in the fabric of life, and to tear it out is not only impossible, but destructive. Attempting to tear it out unravels everything else with it. To try to avoid pain is to give too many fucks about pain. In contrast, if you're able to not give a fuck about the pain, you become unstoppable. If I haven't mentioned this lately, and if you're just joining us, remember that this book and, and, the, and the, the quotes that I'm going to use has explicit language in it. So if that, that's offensive to you, I apologize. This won't be the, the, the broadcast or the book for you. You know, th this avoidance of pain is, is really at the heart of most mental health issues and, and addiction issues. It's really what Carl Jung was talking about, the, the, the great psychologist was talking about, when he said that neurosis, neurotic behavior, is a substitute for legitimate suffering, right? We develop the distractions, defenses. Now, I have an image here that I didn't take from the book, but that I thought of. For those of you that are watching, it's a picture of, of Kramer from Seinfeld. Uh, you can barely tell from the image, maybe, but he's drinking a beer, he's smoking a cigarette at the same time, and... He says to the, the gentleman across from, across from him, well, here's to feeling good all of the time. The, you know, Viktor Frankl talks about this idea that if we seek for happiness, right, if that becomes our priority, we're going to increase our suffering. And that's true for our children, but it's also true for us. And there's something deeper, more transcendent that we can, that we can, we can seek for. We're, we're not going to be able to give zero fucks. That's what Monson says, the author of this book says, but we learn to give a fuck about better things. And we don't, we can't get rid of problems, but we can have better problems than we have. We can't get rid of, of pain, but we can, we can have pain for things that are, are more important, more transcendent, more valuable in our lives. Few quotes from the book, pain is in all its forms is our body's most effective means of spurring action. Happiness is action, he says. It comes from solving our problems. Life is essentially an endless series of problems. The solution to one problem is merely the creation of the next one. Don't hope for a life without problems, he says. There's no such thing. Instead, hope for a life full of good problems. Problems never stop. They merely get exchanged and or upgraded. Warren Buffett's got money problems. The drunk hobo down at the Quickie Mart has money problems. Buffett's just got better money problems than the hobo. All of life is like this. So again, you start to shift to this idea. You're kind of trading up, right? You're, you're, it's less worse. It's less bad. It's kind of a higher level. 
I'll go through what he describes as four of the subtleties, what, what make not giving a fuck a subtle experience or, or art. Subtlety number one, he says, not giving a fuck doesn't mean that uh, being indifferent. It means being comfortable with being different. I hear this all the time from parents, by the way. When I talk about this and I talk about detachment, when I talk about learning to manage your anxiety, when I talk about some of the ways I talk about boundaries or responding to your child, people hear you, you don't care. Let's be clear, Monson says, there's absolutely nothing admirable or confident about indifference. People who are indifferent are lame and scared. They're couch potatoes and internet trolls. In fact, indifferent people often attempt to be indifferent because in reality, they give way too many fucks. They give a fuck about what everybody thinks of their hair, so they will, they will never bother washing or combing it. They give a fuck about what everybody thinks of their ideas, so they hide behind sarcasm and self-righteous snark. They're afraid to let anyone get close to them, so they imagine themselves as some special, unique snowflake who has problems that nobody else would ever understand. I was actually listening to this audiobook in the car the other day while I was driving my 16-year-old uh, somewhere. And I, I, I asked him, because he was listening to music, are you listening to any of this? And he said, yeah, actually, I'm listening to it. And I said, sometimes that, I wonder if that's true for you. And he said, absolutely. He said, sometimes I'm so socially anxious, but, but to manage that, I, I say out loud and I act as if I don't care, and I really do care. So it's not about not caring, it's just about caring for better things, higher level things. Subtlety two, to not give a fuck about adversity, you must first give a fuck about something more important than the adversity. It then follows that finding something important and meaningful in your life is perhaps the most productive use of your time and energy. Because if you don't find that, meaning, that meaningful something, your fucks will be given to meaningless and frivolous causes. Right? And we all know this inherently, right? We know that when our child, when their life is at stake, we start to care about only the biggest and most important things, like them being okay and alive, right? their, their well-being. And we stop giving a fuck about little things, like what, what school is at the top of their diploma, what specific career that they're going to choose, maybe even school altogether for the time being, because we're too busy giving a fuck about really important, fundamental, and necessary things. And I think that's part of what our children do to us in this process, right? They, they invite us to pay attention to something else. They require it of us. Subtlety number three, whether you realize it or not, you're always choosing what to give a fuck about. Essentially, we become more selective about the fucks we're willing to give. This is something called maturity. It's nice. You should try it sometime. Maturity is what happens when one learns to give a fuck about what's truly fuckworthy. As Bunk Moreland said to his partner, Detective McNulty in The Wire, that's what you get for giving a fuck when it wasn't your turn to give a fuck. Then as we grow older and enter middle age, something else begins to change. Our energy level drops. Our identity solidifies. We know who we are and we accept ourselves, including some parts we weren't thrilled about. And in a strange way, this is liberating. We no longer need to give a fuck about everything. Life is what it is. We accept it, warts and all. I, I want to pause here because this is going to be my first commentary. Well, 
second commentary besides the use of language, um, there comes across, and one of the things I don't like about this book is, I, I know it's a technique that he's using to, to, to open up. And in essence, he's saying, I don't give a fuck about what you think. That's why I can write this book the way I write it, the way I want to. You might not like it, but I don't give a fuck. It's, if I give a fuck, it's going to get in the way of me telling the truth. That's what he would say. That's what he does say in the book. But there is an anger and a sarcasm towards us that I don't think is helpful. Some of the, the things that he describes in people in himself, he does so with a kind of a derision. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to, 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 to identify, but that can be harmful. If it's like I talk about in my book, if it's accepting your own idiocy, right? Some people have told me that's really harsh. And I said, I don't mean it as harsh. I mean it like accepting your own humanity, your humanness. But there is at times an edge where I think people that are struggling might feel judged by this. If you feel crappy, it's because your brain is telling you that there's a problem with that's unaddressed or unresolved. In other words, negative emotions are a call to action. When you feel them, it's because you're supposed to do something. I totally agree with that. You know, emotions are our feedback. And it's, it's not, somebody said to me, you know, I hate how anxious I get about something. Somebody told me that recently. And I don't know if that's a good thing to do. And I said, well, it's, it's, it's a great start. Right? It's a great start. And we're going to develop that idea as we go along. It's like what Winnicott said when he said that it's the false self that brings the real self into therapy. What we think therapy is, is not what eventually it becomes. So it's a great start. Anger is, a, is telling you that there's something to pay attention to. Now, our initial impulse to, to act out of anxiety or anger might not be the most inspired thing, right? If we're anxious or disliking our anxiety, our first impulse is to try to, to ignore it or put it in a corner or not look at it or not have it instead of lean into it, look at it, listen to it, be kind to it, be curious about it, ask it what it's trying to tell you. Same with anger. If we feel angry, maybe we have a value that, that anger is bad. But if we listen to anger, it's, it's telling us that we need to make a change. Right? It's like what Harriet Lerner says in her book, my, one of my favorites, from The Dance of Anger. She says, anger is only an effective tool if it causes you to be more clear about yourself, not, not the other person. Our first instinct with anger is to be very clear about the other person and what they did. So it can be a, a, a nice start. Monson says, a question that most people never consider is, what pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for? Because that seems to be a greater determinant of how our lives turn out. I think this is great. And I, I see this in the clients and the students that are in the program. You know, they say things like, I want to be a doctor. Um, I want to have a good relationship. I want to be in shape, play guitar, learn a language, start a business. Parents say, I want to be an effective parent. And what Monson points out is, you want the result oftentimes, but do you want that particular type of suffering? And uh, being a doctor, for example, a medical doctor, there is a powerful, profound, prolonged kind of suffering. And the ones who become doctors and good doctors choose that kind of suffering. To be a great painter, to play the guitar well, there's a particular kind of suffering that people are willing to endure. 
I used to always say I would love to be in shape. I would do anything to be in shape except for exercise and eat better. I would do anything to learn Spanish except for study it. I would do anything to play guitar except for take lessons and practice. So it's, it's being willing to choose a certain kind of suffering that is the, the more, like he says, important determinant about what we really want to do in our lives, what we really want to become. He talks about esteem. I think he makes some good points about esteem. Feeling good about yourself doesn't in and of itself make a difference. The true measurement of self-worth is not how a person feels about her positive experiences, but rather how she feels about her negative experiences. A person like Jimmy hides from his problems by making up imagined successes for himself at every turn. And because he can't face his problems, no matter how good he feels about himself, he is weak. A person who actually has high self-worth is able to look at the negative parts of his character, frankly. Yes, sometimes I'm irresponsible with money. Yes, sometimes I exaggerate my own successes. Yes, I rely too much on others to support me and I should be more self-reliant. So I think it's important. I think this is an important, very valuable concept that, that esteem, enlightenment really is getting on friendly terms with your weaknesses, failures, limitations, the things that you're not so good at. Most of us try to escape that existential anxiety by becoming really good at something or, or only focusing on our positives. I think this is a really worthwhile point and counterintuitive. It's one of his good points. Now I'm going to take you through several comments, principles that he teaches and give you my take on them. I, I think he gets outside of his depth a little bit when he talks about narcissism. Some This book is a combination of, of, of Buddhism, of honesty, of kind of accessible, raw self-help, um, but it's also a kind of common sense that I hear in our culture that just isn't true or accurate. When he describes the, the, the roots of narcissism, because he's not a therapist, he doesn't know that it comes from fractured attachment. He doesn't know that the brain gets wired very early on and that what looks unappealing, offensive, off-putting is the goal of narcissism, to, to keep people at, at a distance. So, so part of his... Um, challenge is that he, because he's a pretty smart guy and, and done some work in his life, he assumes just like lots of people do, well, I live in the world and I know something, so I'm going to be kind of the expert on this. He makes several critiques about therapy and self-help. And what it tells me is he doesn't know what therapy is. Doesn't know what self-help is. He knows what, what some ideas are, but he doesn't really know what it is. He also likes to focus on societal contributions to us. And while I think that those are absolutely impactful, my work has shown me with, with the students with 23 years of practice at this, my work has shown me that oftentimes the most important wounds to look at, to begin to look at, happen to us in our families. And while that might not be a comfortable thing to, to say or to believe, it's a great and important place to start. And then the teachers and the peers and the culture have their take, right? They get their, they get their shot at us. But looking back at that, it's, it's very convenient. And he also has a lot of judgment about people that, that think like that because he thinks that that leads to self-pity. He thinks that that leads to 
blame and playing the victim, and it doesn't. In the hands of a skillful therapist, an empathic, non-judgmental therapist, you can actually move through, address, grieve, let go, grow up, do all the things that he's suggesting. He uses the words good and bad, and that's just, just not how mental health is viewed, right? A mental health lens doesn't look at good and bad. It looks at wounded and healing. He talks about values, and he really mixes up that word a lot. See, the, the, one of the biggest challenges for this book is that he talks a, about mental health as if it's all conscious choice, Right? There's almost nothing in here that he gives um, credit to the unconscious. And, you know, I talk about this all the time when I do therapy trainings to people. If, if, it's, if it's all just about tools and, and skills and teaching, if it's all just conscious, then, uh, then books like this that just tell you what to do would work. But therapists sometimes make the mistake of thinking that, that resistance is something to get around, to get through, to get over with, so that we can get to the real important stuff, which is the answers and the solutions. When, in, in my way of thinking, my experience, resistance is what we're treating. I, I say all the time to clients, every day, I say to people, we all kind of know what to do. We can imagine the quote-unquote right thing to do. My, I get more interested in why we don't do it. And, and I think for, for children, that's part of what they're struggling with is we look at them and we think you're doing something that's obviously irrational, that's obviously self-sabotaging, that's obviously cause, causing more problems. And we get frustrated and we lose our patience and we get scared. But then if we're lucky enough to find an adequate therapist, uh, somebody who can contain us and our children, they redirect that energy and they say, let's get curious. I wonder why. Because there's an answer in there. In some context, this makes perfect sense. Let's find that context, whether we agree with it or not. So that's the biggest mistake that he makes throughout is he doesn't know what resistance is, where it comes from, and how to most effectively treat it. He's kind of saying, I figured this out, so... Here's how you do it. Um, he does talk about this idea. Again, it has a judgmental tone to it about believing, you know, this generation, generations of kids believing that they're special. And there is research that, that tells us. It's called The Growth Versus the Fixed Mindset. It's in the book Nurture Shock. It's from a professor at Stanford, uh, Carol Dweck, who talks and teaches about this in many areas. The children that are told that they're special have high rates of anxiety, right? Put a high bar to themselves and believe that if they're anything less than perfect, they're a failure. So there's some truth to that. But again, it, it mostly starts off in the family. Then it's reinforced in school. And, and so many of us, even me, have made the mistake. When I say even me, I make it still. We make the mistake of telling children how wonderful they are instead of saying things like, congratulations, wow, good job, or wow, you can be proud of that, or you know what, you're really good at math, but you put in so many hours. I'm really impressed with you not giving up. My son is a, is a great artist, and my son is, has been obsessed with art virtually his entire life. 
He has drawn, painted, sculpted more. He's spent more time doing that every day. He's getting a master's degree right now. And he spends every day and all day when he's not studying for his master's degree or, or working, he spends drawing something new and different. There's a great line from Macklemore, the rapper, who, who says, you know, great painters aren't great because, they're born, because when they were born they could paint. They're great because they paint a lot. That's what that concept is talking about. Self-awareness, you know, he talks about, admits that he's not very self-aware. Uh, doesn't know why he's feeling what he's feeling. And that's, that's, a, that's a great thing to offer. It's, we, all, we all need, you know, can be more self-aware. I talked about the illusion of choice in the conscious mind. It's definitely something that you're responsible for, your pain, your response to life, something that's yours. <clears throat> but to call, it, to, to call it choice, I think, misses the depth, the richness, the texture, the layers, the brain science. Um, he's got some good stories in the book. Um, one of my favorites is he talks about, um, and he uses the term shitty values, you know, this is again. That's that's an edge. That's not where I would take it. I would talk about values that don't work or that hurt you, keep you limited. He likes the the edge with swear words and derision. Uh, he talks about this one rock star, excuse me, this one guitar player, where the band was signed to a to a record contract. Finally, they had made it, and they kicked the guitar player, lead guitar player, out of their band. So the day that they finally made it. They unceremoniously just kicked him out of the band. No negotiation, <clears throat> nothing. He was gone. So this guy gets kicked out of the band. He says, I'm going to spend my entire life proving to them that they made a mistake. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And that pain became his muse. <coughs> and he ended up selling 50 million records in his career. That's pretty good. His first album went gold. And by most anybody's standard, he was successful. The only problem is the band that kicked him out sold 150 million records. And they're Metallica. Some of you may know them. And so against that matrix, against my success is, is, is as good as, has to be as good as or better than Metallica's, he was a failure. But virtually compared to any other matrix that, that most of us would think about, we would consider him a, a, a grand success. And then he contrasted that with the, the drummer, the original drummer before Ringo Starr that was kicked out of the band in much the same way, much the same timing. And he sunk into a depression for years. But later in an interview, later in his life, he said, I had a much better life than I think I would have had had I stayed with the Beatles. And I found something that it took, you know, Paul and John and Ringo years to find. Years to accomplish. I have a wonderful family, a wonderful, enjoyable career, and I'm happy. Because he changed his matrix from being successful to the Beatles to I'm going to value something else. And that's what Monson talks about, having shitty versus good values. He talks about, again, choice. It doesn't resonate with me that it's about... There are choices in all of this work. But to simply choose a different value would be hard. It, it, I believe that a lot of what Monson talks about is the result of a lot of work. And he starts there. He says, change your values and your matrix. 
That's not a bad idea. It's not untrue. Most of what he says is not untrue. It just doesn't have the depth. He talks about them as the cause of change rather than the result of growth. He talks about the difference between responsibility and fault. Basically, the difference between saying, I can't control what happens to me, the cards that I'm dealt, but it's my responsibility to play them, to deal with them. He says, you were wrong about everything and so am I. I like that for sure. He definitely tries to bring it back to a humility place, even though at times he sounds very confident about about what he knows and where things come from. And then he talks a lot about the value of, of suffering. One of the principles he talks about throughout the book is uncertainty. This is an example of what I was describing earlier. He says, uncertainty is the root of all progress and growth. And, and it's true, being uncertain, the Buddhists call it having a, a beginner's mind. Therapists call it being open. Um, that does lead to growth. But being uncertain, having a beginner's mind, being open is also the result of some significant work. Certainty is the defense against feeling insecure, feeling threatened, feeling like we should know, right? So, so it's, it's not necessarily the root of all progress. It's, it's, it's in part the result of progress. And then that's why I, I think he kind of misses it. It is both the result and the starting point of growth, I say, but there must be some foundation for someone to arrive at that kind of certainty that he talks about, the kind of uncertainty that he talks about. Anger and judgment towards yourself doesn't tend to lead to healthy change. Using words like selfish, and he uses a lot of words that, that are derogatory toward personality traits, dickish. One time he calls it having a, a dickish attitude. Um, it doesn't tend to encourage healthy change. It tends to actually provoke and increase resistance. So here's my, my take home. I think it's a, it presents some Buddhist ideas in an accessible way, uh, specifically on the subjects of, of suffering, self-compassion, not knowing, and what it means to be a self, how to develop. There's some really great stories and examples of these concepts in there. He is beyond his depth in parts, and he doesn't know the basis of many versions of therapy or, or self-help. I love it. that Probably what, what the language is for is to reinforce <clears throat> for him and for you, not to take yourself too seriously. The, the, the idea that suffering comes from valuing things or accepting cultural ideas that we should question is valuable. He talks about the idea of killing yourself, right? Of killing the Buddhist idea of uh, letting go of a version of yourself to be born again. <clears throat> and resistance. This is my biggest critique of the book is he doesn't talk about, doesn't know about, can't speak to resistance. I've shared this before. This is something I came up with, <clears throat> and I thought about it all throughout the book. The, these three keys to enlightenment that I, that I think about every day. The first one is to learn to be okay with being wrong and get really good at losing. He definitely gets that message across in the book. Get comfortable with that. Come to know your darkness and, and remains on, remain on speaking terms with your mental illness. Right? Get comfortable with your dilemma. Don't shy away from it or shun it, but lean into it. Understand it. Listen to it. It has something to tell you. Learn how to die again and again. Old concepts, beliefs, relationships, letting go. And he definitely gets that message. All right. 
I want you to send in any questions now. I'm going to go over um, upcoming events, announcements. First of all, if you want to do a deep dive into your own work, I think there's one spot, perhaps there may be one spot available at our February Finding You. You can, you can email intensives at evoketherapy.com. If you're a current parent, we would like you to come to a workshop, if at all possible, experiential, multifamily. You can combine this with a, with a visit to your child if the therapist thinks it's good timing. Contact Melanie at evoketherapy.com for that. We ask all current parents to go to six 12-step support groups. Any combination of Al-Anon, CODA, Families Anonymous, Alateen for teenagers, uh, adult children of alcoholics, go to adultchildren.org. You can also go to refugerecovery.org, find meetings that are Buddhist-inspired meetings for recovery, and then you can go to nami.org, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Go there, look for affordable resources in your community. Parent support groups we make available. The next one is February 11th in New York City, 7 to 9 p.m. If you have the chance to go to see Birgit, one of our therapists, do. She's delightful, wonderful. You'll love her. And then I'll be in Southern California on February 24th. We're doing an earlier start so you can get home in time to watch the Academy Awards that night if you'd like. Contact Melanie at evoketherapy.com for more information to any of those. All of these broadcasts are available through the podcast app on your iPhone or iOS device. Just go to the app and search Evoke Therapy Programs. If you have an Android device, download the SoundCloud app and search Evoke Therapy Programs there, or just go to soundcloud.com on any computer and search Evoke Therapy Programs. Subscribe to us there. Download them, listen to them on the go. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Evoke Therapy. On Facebook, you can find us by searching Evoke Therapy Programs. You can also find the Evoke Family Foundation on Facebook by searching their name there. And then our blog has new information. Pursuit trips are for uh, families. Think fun activities, adventure therapy, um, anywhere in the world. Sober fun, therapy light. My book, The Journey of the Rogue Parent, is available on paperback on Amazon or audio versions there. All right. Any live questions, I'm happy to. First parent says, first person says, the author doesn't seem to get at one point that we have this complex organ in our skull. It's called a brain. Some, someone should tell him. I think you're right. It, it's not bad, and it's a great title, and it would have been a nice blog, for sure. And he will sell a, share a million books, for sure. All right, no further questions. A couple of things that are interesting coming up. Um, Claire Madison, our new clinical director and facilitator at our intensive lodge in Park City, Utah, she's going to be talking about that tomorrow night uh, on a webinar at 7 p.m., so... Tune in for that. This is going to be available <clears throat> as, a, as a feature um, coming up where we're going to have uh, Claire and intensive staff doing webinars and podcasts for alumni of intensives. So you can have that in, in addition to these for parents. And then my next webinar will be next Monday the 4th. I'll let you know what the title of that will be. Sorry for the tickly coffee throat. Thanks for joining me tonight. Hope this was a helpful point of contact. And thank you for and on behalf of your child um, for, for uh, being willing to look at yourself, for being willing to take a step along the heroic journey. Somebody just asked a question. I'll, I'll answer it. When you refer to resistance, could you expand? Resistance is anything that gets in the way of me growing. Um, resistance could be agreeing, could be compliance, could be defiance. 
could be it's it's just me not able to take in the messages the wisdom that life has to offer that a therapist that a parent that a self-help book has to offer it's what gets in the way of me hearing it and so like i said most people they just want to get through it get around it fix resistance so that they can get the real message across and what i'm saying is we're really treating the thing that gets in the way of listening of of hearing of knowing that's what we're treating where does that come from why don't you know why don't I do what, what I know to do on paper? Why don't I even know what to do sometimes? So that's what resistance is. I've got a couple more questions are coming up. The author mentioned something about things we should do, but you mentioned being more interested in why we don't do them. The curiosity around that. I appreciate the reminder to be curious more often. Lots to think about. All right, folks. Uh, you should all get the, uh, the invite. Somebody's asking for the, inten- the, the invitation. For tomorrow night's intensive broadcast, you should all get that um, soon also. So thanks for joining me tonight. Take care. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.